Well, my name is Nate, and if we haven't met, I would love to meet you at some point. Maybe we can do that after the service. <clears throat> Something that I like to do in my free time, uh, when, especially before I had a daughter, um, was watch documentaries about American history and stuff like that. And in this one particular documentary that I watched several years ago, it was about the American Revolution. And one of the commentators in that documentary said something that I've never forgotten. And here's what he said. He said, once the colonists thought of themselves as Americans rather than British, revolution was inevitable. Once the colonists thought of themselves as we're Americans rather than British, revolution was inevitable. They weren't going to be able to continue to be colonists of Britain if they didn't think of themselves as British, but if they thought of themselves as Americans. And the reason that I've always remembered that is because that is the power of identity. That's the power of how individuals and groups of people understand themselves to be. Isn't it true that who you understand yourself to be determines so much about what you do? Who we understand ourselves to be determines so much about what we do. I wonder, what are some of the identities that you live by? What are some of the, the things that inform how you understand yourself? Uh, maybe something with your career is how you understand yourself. You think, I'm a leader, I'm an attorney, I'm a teacher. I'm a business guy. Maybe there's something about your career that informs who you are. Maybe something about your family. I'm a mom. I'm a grandparent. Maybe there's an accomplishment, like I'm a black belt, or I'm a UW grad, or I'm retired. Maybe there's a team. I'm a Seahawks fan. That's why I came to the nine o'clock service today. You know, we gotta get home. And so you better just wrap it up, man, because we got places to be, you know? And so if you leave, you know, 10 or 15 minutes before 10 o'clock, I will understand why. And you've got permission, all right, to do what you need to do today. Um, maybe there's a political affiliation that is how you identify yourself. I'm a conservative, I'm a liberal, I'm a libertarian. Maybe there's a personality type. I'm a seven, wing eight. I'm a three, wing two, and I'm the best, and I can help you with whatever you might need. <laughs> and isn't it true that who we understand ourselves to be eventually shapes what we do? And this is true on a surface level. Depending on the, identity, the, the identification that you embrace, this will affect the clothes that we wear, the cars that we drive, the media we consume, the decorations and furniture that we choose, the purchases that we make. Isn't that true? And it's also true for more serious things, like the causes we support, the people we associate with, the dreams and the goals that we have, the values that we live by and that we try to instill in our kids. Who we understand ourselves to be shapes so much of what we do. And the same is true 
for Christians, and the same is true for the church. And that's the point of the book of Philippians. Today, we're starting a series that we're going to be in for the next 12 weeks where we're going to walk through the book of Philippians. And here is the message of Philippians. Here is the point of the whole book. Philippians 1, verse 27. Here's what it says. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. There is an identity that transcends all other identities. And if you embrace this identity, it will shape your life. The identity, Paul says, is just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. For the next 12 weeks, we're going to talk about what that means. What does it mean to understand yourself as a citizen of heaven? And what does it mean to live your life worthy of the gospel? What does that mean? Today, we're just going to look at the introduction of this book. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, what we just heard read. And by looking at this introduction of this letter... By looking at how Paul greets the Philippians and what he says that he's praying for them, we're going to learn a couple things today. The first is why Paul chooses to use this identity, citizens of heaven, in his letter to the Philippians. He didn't do that in any of his other letters, so why choose to do that for the Philippians? That's what we're going to learn today. And we're going to learn today the first, the first thing it means to live as a citizen of heaven. All right? So we're going to walk through this introduction together, and uh, we're going to kind of jump around a little bit. But first, we're going to see why Paul chooses to use this particular metaphor, identity marker for the Philippians. All right? We learn the occasion of this letter and the context of this letter in the very first verse. Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. This first verse gives us the occasion for this letter. Who's the author of this letter? It says, Paul and Timothy. What do you know about Paul and Timothy? Maybe nothing. Let me tell you a few things. Paul hated Christians. He was a devout Jewish man who understood Jesus and Jesus' followers to be leading people away from the truthfulness of Judaism. And so he hated Christians. And so if you're here today and you also are kind of annoyed by Christians, maybe the Apostle Paul is somebody that you could relate to because he hated them even more than you do. And so he was giving his life to arresting followers of Jesus and also supporting people who were executing them. And then Paul encountered the risen Jesus in this miraculous way 
on his way to the city of Damascus. And that changed his life forever. He ended up going from someone who hated Christians and wanted to see Christians killed to becoming one himself. And after studying for like 15 years, he eventually becomes a leader of the Christian movement. And he's probably the most famous Christian of all time. And he eventually would go on to start a bunch of churches around the Mediterranean rim in the first century. And he wrote the majority of the New Testament, which are primarily letters that he wrote to those churches that he had started. So that's who the Apostle Paul was. And it says that he's with this guy named Timothy. Timothy was a young man who Paul invested in. And eventually Timothy would grow up to be a pastor. So that's who Paul and Timothy were. Right now, while Paul is writing this, we learn as we read throughout the letter, he's in prison for being a Christian. He's been arrested because of his faith in Jesus. He's literally in chains. And that's where he writes this letter from prison. Who does he write it to? Also tells us in verse one. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. In this little phrase, including the overseers and deacons, lets us know that this is not just a bunch of random Christians in Philippi who never get together, but this is actually a local church. They've actually got some organization. They've actually got some leadership. They've actually got some government within their church. They actually have some rules for how they operate. This is a local church just like we're a local church. And that's who Paul's writing to. And this local church is in the city of Philippi. And here's what we know about Philippi. Paul started this church in Philippi. You can read about this in Acts chapter 16. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 12, it tells us just a snapshot of the city of Philippi. It says, and from there to Philippi, that's where Paul went, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. So Philippi was a Roman colony and a very prominent city in this area called Macedonia or this Greek culture. And here's why that's significant. The people who live in Philippi are predominantly Roman citizens. Many of them are retired veterans and patriots who love Rome and want to see Rome flourish. And they live in this colony in the city of Philippi where their mission is to uphold and promote Roman values amongst the Greeks. And Paul understood their calling very well because Paul was also a Roman citizen. And that was actually very rare in the ancient world. There was a lot of power and privilege that came with being a Roman citizen. For example, a Roman citizen had to go through a trial before you could, you know, beat them or enslave them. That's pretty good, right? That didn't apply to everyone in the ancient world, but it applied to citizens. And this is why when Paul is in the city of Philippi, when he's starting the church, 
as he starts to proclaim the message of Jesus, people turn against him because they think he's going to lead people to ignore the customs of Rome. And so this mob comes together. The government actually beats Paul and throws him in prison. And afterwards, he says, oh, by the way, I'm a citizen. And then they freak out because they realize what they've done is now illegal and the Roman authorities who they report to protect their citizens. And so Paul understands the importance of citizenship in the ancient world. He understands the importance of the calling that the Philippians have to to live in this colony in Philippi, to promote Roman values. And into that unique cultural moment, here's what Paul said. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, Philippians, you retired veterans, you patriots who love your homeland, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. I understand citizenship as well because I was born a citizen. Big deal in their world. Paul says, but listen, now that you're a follower of Jesus, the identity that should most inform who you understand yourself to be and how you live doesn't come down from Rome anymore. It's not the message that Caesar proclaims anymore. Instead, it's the message of Jesus. It's the gospel. Do you see why using this image, this metaphor for citizenship matters to the Philippians? Do you see why Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, chooses this identity to write specifically to this group of people about? And what do citizens of heaven do? What does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? That's what we're gonna find out in this series. Today, here's what we're gonna learn. This is the first thing that we learn about being a citizen of heaven, living as citizens of heaven. Here's the first thing we learn today. That citizens of heaven partner together for the gospel in local churches. Citizens of heaven do not try to live as citizens apart from a local church. Instead, they partner together for the gospel in local churches. That's what citizens of heaven do. So where did we get that? Well, Paul starts this letter with this greeting and then he gives this little introduction And he tells them that he regularly prays for them. Listen to what he says in verses three through five. Paul says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says that he prays with thanks and joy, gratitude and joy, because 
This local church has partnered with him in the gospel. He says something similar in verse seven. He says, indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are, here's the part, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You are partners. Do you see the word partners twice there? Partnership and partners. This word is sometimes translated in the New Testament as fellowship. Fellowship. When we hear the word fellowship as Christians, generally we think about like a potluck, you know, or you're getting together and we're just having good old fellowship. We're just talking and, you know, sharing stories or something. I don't know. So if you hang out with people at church, fellowship. If you hang out with people at work, just hanging out, you know. The word fellowship actually carries way more of a business sense to it. To be in fellowship to be, is to be in a partnership, just like you would in business with someone. It's to pull your resources together to see something happen. It's to be in, it's, it's to go in on something together for a common cause. That's what it means to be in partnership and fellowship. Citizens of heaven come together for a purpose. The church then is not just a family reunion every Sunday where it's like, hey, everybody, we just get together and then we go home and we all do our own things until next week. Instead, the church is a partnership. We go in on something together. We share a common vision, a common cause. And that should inform how we understand ourselves as Christians and how we understand ourselves as a church. We are partners together for the gospel. So that is all introductory to what we wanna actually talk about today. And that's this, two questions that I wanna talk about today. Why should we partner together for the gospel? And then the second question that we'll get to in just a minute is how do we partner together for the gospel? So why should we partner together for the gospel? That's the first question I wanna think about. Here's the first reason. The gospel supplies us with a new and better identity. The gospel supplies us with a new and better identity. We've been talking about the gospel, but what do we mean when we say gospel? When we use the word gospel at church, we can use it in two senses, okay? The gospel can refer to one of the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are gospels. But when we use the word gospel, generally we're referring to the, the overarching message of Christianity. The word gospel just means good news, good announcement that something good has happened. That's what the gospel is. So what is the good news of Christianity? What is the good news of Jesus? Here it is. That God has done something for the world in his son, Jesus that has the power to save them. 
God has done something for the world in his son Jesus that has the power to save them. Why do we need saving in the first place? Because all of us live in a dysfunctional world and we all contribute to that dysfunction. The Bible calls that sin. Rather than succeed at making the world a better place, we fail, we fall short. Rather than pursue God's design for the world, instead we try to be God ourselves and define what the world is supposed to be on our own. Because of that, we've created a dysfunctional world. And because of that, we deserve to be destroyed. We deserve to pay for the injustices that, are, that exist in the world because we contribute to the injustice. The good news of Christianity is that even though We've all contributed to injustice. We're all guilty of rebelling against God. We're all guilty of destroying the earth and destroying relationships. The good news of the gospel is that we do not have to pay. Instead, God has sent his son, Jesus. Jesus lived a life that we should have lived. Jesus is the ideal human who did everything that humans were designed to do. And then Jesus goes to a cross and he dies to pay the price that we deserve to pay. And he is raised from the dead in power and glory. And everyone who comes to him in faith, everyone who who says, okay, I'm not gonna try to to save myself anymore. I'm not gonna think that I'm wise enough to fix the world anymore, but instead I'm going to come to Jesus in faith for everyone who does that. They can be saved. That's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has done something for the world in his son Jesus to save them. So that means But the message of Christianity is not primarily that you've got to do something for God. The message of Christianity is primarily that God has done something for you by sending his son, Jesus. You do not have to crucify yourself for your flaws and your failures. Instead, there is a savior who has been crucified for you in your place. So the invitation of the gospel is believe it. Believe that something has happened that can save you. How does that message give us a new and better identity? Look at what Paul says again in verse one. He calls these people who belong to this church, these Christians, He says, to all the saints, to all the saints, that's the new identity that you get in the gospel. See, apart from the gospel, we are dead in our sins. 
But with the gospel, we are alive in Christ. Apart from the gospel, we are guilty before God, but with the gospel, we are justified before God. Apart from the gospel, we are enemies of God, but with the gospel, we are at peace with God. Apart from the gospel, we are clothed with shame, but with the gospel, we are clothed as saints in glory and honor. Apart from the gospel, we are destined for hell, but with the gospel, we are destined for glory. We are bound for glory. And then, not only does he say to all the saints, but he also says, in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi. To all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi. It's as if Paul is saying, when you become a Christian, your residency changes. You don't just live in Philippi anymore, you live in Christ. And rather than being in your sin, now you are in Christ. Rather than being a failure, now in Christ, you have victory. Why? Because Jesus won by overcoming the grave. Now, even though in Philippi, when people get old or sick, they die, now in Christ, we have resurrection. Before, we were destined for destruction. Now, we are destined for heaven. The gospel, why should we partner together to see the good news of Jesus advanced? Because in the gospel, there is a new and better identity. If you're a Seahawks fan, you'll die. Maybe not today, maybe not in February at the Super Bowl, but someday you will pass away. If you're a conservative or a liberal, you'll die. But if you're a citizen of heaven because of the gospel, you will live. There's a new and better identity in the gospel. And here's the second reason we should partner together for the gospel. Because the gospel secures us for the day of Christ. The gospel secures us for the day of Christ. The day of Christ is a little word in the New Testament that refers to when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. Jesus died on the cross, was raised from the dead, ascended to be with his father, and someday, in the same way, he will return to the earth to judge the living and the dead. That is a terrifying thought, really. I mean, if that's true, that somebody who was dead and raised from the dead and then ascended to be with God in heaven is going to come back to judge, that's terrifying. Unless you know the gospel. The gospel secures us for the day of Christ. Paul can pray 
with thanksgiving and joy when he thinks about the Philippians because he's confident in the power of the gospel. Listen to what he says in verse six. I am sure of this. I have confidence in this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Then jump down to verse 10. He says, I want you to prove the things that are superior so that you may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. If you're following along in your Bible, you might circle day of Christ in verse six and day of Christ there in verse 10. The day of Christ is when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And Paul says in the gospel, you can stand before him ready, prepared, pure and blameless because what God has started in you, he's going to make sure he completes. God is faithful to do that. The gospel says that we are saved in that day, the day of Christ, not by what we have done, but by what God has done. In the movie um, Hitch, uh, it's an old movie, maybe you've seen it. Um, but Hitch, played by Will Smith, is a date doctor and he helps guys uh, go on more dates with women. And in the opening scene, he's coaching up this guy. And this guy's getting ready for the date and he says, when you're wondering what to say or how you look, just remember, she's already out with you. That means she said yes when she could have said no. That means she made a plan when she could have just blown you off. So that means it's no longer your job to make her like you. It's your job not to mess it up. (laughs) And the good news of the gospel is you can't mess this up. If you didn't earn your salvation, then how are you going to unearn it? Jesus and the power of the gospel holds us so that we can be secure. We can be safe in the day of Christ when he returns. There's a Puritan who said, and I I can't find this quote, but I remember it. He says, a baby is safe in his mother's arms, not because he clings to his mother, but because she clings to him. And that is the picture of the gospel. The gospel supplies us with a new and better identity and the gospel secures us for the day of Christ. When Jesus returns, our end is not destruction, but instead we are bound for glory. Paul will pick this theme up in Philippians chapter three. We'll look at this in several weeks, but he says this, Philippians 3, 18. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. But verse 20, our citizenship, because of the gospel, 
Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. If you belong to Jesus, your future is secure. It is not destruction. It is transformation. It is glory. If that's true, if those things are true because of the gospel, then do you see why it makes sense that we should come together and partner together for the gospel? There is no other hope like this one. So how do we partner together for the gospel? How do we do that? First, we pray. We pray together. Paul says he regularly prays for the Philippians. In Philippians 1, 3 again, he says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Verse 4, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. He's regularly praying. And he's praying with confidence because he knows Jesus is going to carry them until the day of Christ. And he's praying with joy and thanksgiving because, verse five, of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Part of their partnership involves praying for one another. Prayer may be more than anything else reveals that we understand the gospel. Why would that be true? Because for you to pray about something requires that you acknowledge that I'm weak, but he is strong. I'm weak, but he is strong. See, prayer is a complete waste of time if you're ultimately in control of your life. I mean, if you're responsible for making sure that the thing happens at work or the thing happens in the church or the thing happens wherever. If you're, if you're primarily responsible for that, prayer is literally a waste of time. I mean, maybe like a, an exercise of clearing your head and thinking more clearly about something could be helpful so that you can go make a decision. But prayer, I mean, talking to an invisible God is useless if you ultimately are gonna be in charge and you've gotta go make things happen. Prayer, the belief that would lead someone to pray is the belief that says, I am weak and I need God to do something that I cannot do myself. And that's the same belief that would lead someone to become a Christian in the first place. That's what it means to embrace the gospel. The gospel says, I cannot stand before a holy God on my own. I need God to do something. I need God to do something for me. So you see how faith in the gospel is the same faith that would lead someone to pray. So this is why Paul prays for stuff that it seems like the Philippians need to do. I mean, he says this in Philippians 9, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you can approve the things that are superior and be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I mean, like... 
Don't they just need to go love each other? Why are you praying about that? Isn't that something they need to do? If you want them to grow in knowledge and discernment, don't they just need to, I don't know, read and learn some stuff, have some conversation? Like, why are you praying, Paul? Because he understands that God is at work. And he needs God to do something. If this is gonna happen, God's gotta do something in us. He'll talk about this in Philippians chapter two, verse 12. We'll get there in a few weeks. So if we are going to partner together for the gospel, then we have to commit to praying with one another and for one another. Praying together in our gatherings on Sundays, praying in community groups, praying in meetings, having meetings set aside specifically for prayer, praying as elders and staff and praying for one another. Our church, if we are going to, par- if we are going to partner together for the gospel, must pray. And what kind of stuff should we pray for? Anything that we wanna see God do, we should be praying for. So, just made a quick list here. That our church would regularly preach God's word and the Holy Spirit would use it to build, to build his church. Do we want that to be true of our church? Well, then let's pray for the regular preaching of God's word. Do we want it to be true that guests would feel welcomed here? Then let's pray for that. Do we want it to be true that our singing would encourage one another. Did you know that's one of the goals of our singing here on Sundays? It's not just to direct our singing to God, but actually to direct it to one another so that we're encouraged. Do we want to see that happen? Then let's pray for it. Do we want to see the gospel advance around the world through missionaries? Then let's pray for that. Do we want for our church to be known for local kindness in in our community? Then let's pray for that. Anything we want to see God doing, we should be praying for. Do we want to see an increase in conversions and baptisms? Then let's pray for it. What could prayer look like in your life? What could it look like for you to partner, to to understand I'm going to partner together with this church for the gospel by praying? What might that look like? What might that look like for you privately? What might it look like for you with your roommates? What might it look like for you with your spouse? What might it look like for you with your family, your friends, your community group? Maybe you're part of a group, a men's group, a women's group, a community group, and maybe this is a question you guys should just talk about. Hey, what could we do to be more intentional about praying with each other? Maybe that's a question for you to consider. Partners in the gospel, pray. How do we partner together in the gospel? We pray, we also give. The Philippians regularly supported Paul's ministry. Listen to Philippians chapter four, verses 14 through 16. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. There's the word partner again. Verse 15, and you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, No church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. Verse 16, for even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. If you have been transformed by the generosity of the gospel, 
then give generously to the work of the gospel. Giving to the work of the gospel means giving to the regular preaching and teaching of God's word, to the regular gathering of the church for worship, for the practical needs of fellow Christians, for the sending and supporting of missionaries who take the gospel to unreached people groups around the world, to the great commission work of discipleship and evangelism. In other words, one of the primary ways you could give to the work of the gospel is to give to a local church. Paul was supported by the Philippian church. Do you notice that? That means they were giving their money to the church and then the church was giving money to Paul. The cool thing about gospel work is that it's always a wise investment. We don't always see the results, but we can have confidence, just as Paul says in verse six, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We can be sure that that is true when we invest in gospel work. When you give to advance the gospel, you are making eternal investments. So, would you pray about partnering with us in the gospel by giving regularly to our church? Now, this is my first Sunday as like the official lead pastor, all right? And so it feels awkward to bring that up, honestly. <laughs> but that's what it means to partner together for the gospel. And so... While I don't ever want to twist your arm into giving, God loves a cheerful giver, and while I don't want to ever come across like the primary thing that we care about is your money, I do also want to be obedient to the scriptures to ask you to partner with us. And I hope that you'll give me grace in that. So how do we partner together for the gospel? We pray, we give, and we love Paul's tone throughout this first little section just oozes with love. Listen to verse seven. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse eight, for God is my witness. How deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He is oozing with love for them. And then the first thing that he's praying for them is that their love will keep on growing. In verse nine, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing. Love for what and who? Love for God and love for one another and love for our neighbors. He doesn't specify. But we know Jesus said, here's how the world's gonna know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. So we know that's included. And Jesus said, the summary of the law is to love God, so we know that's included. And we know that Jesus said, hey, you should love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second greatest command. So I think we can pretty safely conclude that to love, to partner together in love means we need to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What would it look like for you to start loving God with your mind? Some of you are brilliant and God designed you that way and he wants you to love him with your mind. What would that look like for you? What would it look like for us to love one another 
to partner together for the gospel by loving each other and by loving our neighbors. The church is at its best when we're doing this. Uh, This week, I heard several stories about ways that our church is loving one another. And it's super encouraging. We just shared some of these at our staff meeting on Thursday, but there's a community group in our church who heard about a woman who was going through a really just horrific situation and they banded together to care for this woman. And the church also has a benevolence, a kindness ministry, and we are also going to be able to help in that way. But before we could even go through those steps, there was already a community group in this woman's life who is caring for her and meeting her needs. That's the kind of love that we're talking about. Um, There was a woman who has started coming to our church, um, and the reason that she decided to stay at our church is because someone at our church remembered her name. That is what it means to love people. There was someone who just moved to the area. She came to Highlands to meet people and someone from our church met her and got coffee with her just on her own. Decided she met her and then they exchanged numbers and then they went and got coffee. That's what we're talking about. This is not like, okay, so we're supposed to partner together in love, so now we're gonna have a love ministry and we're gonna think of all of these ways to love one another and it's gonna be great and you've gotta come on Saturdays to the love ministry and just love people. Just do it, all right? Do it for people who have been here forever and do it for new people. Introduce yourself to people on Sundays. Rather than view Sunday as get in, get out, Introduce yourself to people, exchange numbers, invite people to grab lunch or grab coffee, invite people over to your house, pray for someone that you don't know very well. Just commit to start praying for them. The church is at its best when we love. Would you partner with us in the gospel by loving? And then a church partners together. When we grow, Paul prays that we would grow in love and knowledge and discernment in verse nine. Do you see how Paul's prayer for their growth is connected to the gospel? How do we grow in love? How do we even know what kind of love we're talking about? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The gospel actually informs how we could grow in love because it helps us know what love looks like. Jesus said, just as I have loved you, so you are to love. How did Jesus love? He laid down his life. The gospel also helps us grow in knowledge. How do we come to know God, period? Literally, how can we even know the invisible God? Only through his son. His son is displayed in his word. And discernment, seeing as God sees, means learning how to follow Jesus and live as he lived. So partnering together in the gospel means growing in the gospel, growing in love and knowledge and discernment. 
The gospel doesn't just make us saved, past tense. The gospel continues to save us, present tense. Partnering in the gospel is not just about passing the gospel to others, but also growing deeper in the gospel ourselves. And if we will do this, if we will commit to growing in love and knowledge and discernment, he says we will become the best people possible and make the best decisions possible. Look at verse 10. Here's why you should do this. So that you may approve the things that are superior. Do you ever have decisions in your life to make and you're not sure which one's best? Paul says, grow in love and knowledge and discernment by growing in the gospel and you will be able to approve the best things, make the best decisions possible. And he says, you will also become the best people possible. You will become pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Pure and blameless means when people bring your life under the light to examine it, you'll have nothing to be ashamed of. All of this comes from the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What steps are you taking to grow in your faith? Citizens of heaven partner together for the gospel in local churches. They pray, they give, they love, and they grow together for the sake of the gospel. So my question for you is, will you partner with us in the gospel? Let me pray for you, and then I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. Father, we praise you. We praise you for saving us, We praise you for sending your son to make that possible. God, I pray for our church, that we would be a church who grows in love and knowledge and discernment. I pray that you would help us to be a church who approves the things that are superior. When we go to make decisions, God, would you help us make the best ones? I pray that not just for our church leadership, but for our church membership, for the people who call our church home, would you also do that? And God, I pray that you would use our partnership to help more and more people in our city and around the world come to know the saving power that is the gospel. God, would we be partners who honor you? It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?